As we come now to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 1? That's Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, would you help us to value these things, to value these words because they come ultimately from you. Help us to hold them close and dear to us. As we read and listen, would you guide us by your spirit, help us to hear and to obey. Be with me and us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Philippians. In chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1, and I'd like to read the first 11 verses here. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. What we've just heard now is the beginning of a letter that's mailed from Paul. Timothy's with him, but primarily from Paul to the people, uh, the church there in the city of Philippi. And all of Paul's writings in the scriptures are in this form in the form of letters, so we're really just kind of opening his mail here. And this letter, the letter to the Philippians, uh, is considered by many to be Paul's warmest letter, his most encouraging letter, and one of his most quotable letters. So as we go through it over the coming weeks and months, you'll recognize many of the verses here because they get... Uh, thrown around in good ways in, in culture. 
But uh, not everything that is said about Paul's letter here to the Philippians is, is positive. Uh, one scholar and commentator on the letter of Philippians wrote this. He says, the sentiments and dispositions which the letter exhibits to us are certainly sweet and touching. Yet this must not blind us to the fact that the letter is characterized very decidedly by monotonous repetition of what has already been said, by a want of any profound and masterly connection of ideas, and by a certain poverty of thought. There is no distinct indication of any purpose or any leading idea. There is nothing fresh or natural in this letter. A bit of a, a stern word, I suppose, against that. And I, you know, I don't agree quite with that. You know, the issue, I think, there is perhaps the issue that maybe some of us have when we approach the Bible. Uh, the, this issue that he has of, of the letter of Philippians lacking a clear direction or having a main idea. Sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we treat parts of the Bible like a, a Wikipedia page. That, that we expect that when we come to the Bible, we ought to be able to, to look things up. That, there would, that it would be a source of sort of encyclopedic information or that we would be able to outline topics or, or categorize things. And that's true to an extent, but that's not the way that this letter works in Philippians. Now, in fairness to this guy, uh, he's right to an extent that the letter of the, to the Philippians, as we read, is a little bit roaming. So if you're a hiker at all, we know some hikers, uh, whether it's from their personality or otherwise, are trying to get from point A to point B. That's usually what mountain hiking is. You're trying to get to the summit. You have a particular goal. You're trying to get from this point to that. Uh, but other times when we hike, you're walking along and, oh, look, a flower. And you go over and you pick it if that's allowed. Or, or sometimes we take literal rabbit trails and, and follow animals through the forest or, or, or end up in wild parts that we didn't necessarily expect. And that second type of hiking is what Paul is doing here. Uh, there's a bit of roaming through the book of Philippians as he, he thanks the people in Philippi for their gift. He, he updates them on how he's doing because there's been uh, prison and illness. He's, he's encouraging them in the faith. Uh, he's talking to them about humility, and he's really emphasizing the gospel of Jesus. Now, just because Paul's a little bit roaming here, that's not to say that what he says is unimportant. This really matters for us. But as we approach it, we have to listen as if, uh, for what it is, that Paul, this is more like a chat between friends over coffee. And it's that way because Paul really shares life with them, that there is real care between them. So in the open of the book of the Philippians, in a lot of his letters, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's emphasizing his authority, and that's true. But here he doesn't use that word. He doesn't really need to. Here he describes himself as, as a servant. And you can hear the affection in the opening that he has for these people. Uh, he talks about, in verse 3, thanking God for them. In verse 7, he talks about 
feeling for them, that he holds them in his heart. And then in verse 8, he says a striking phrase that he yearns for them. That might sound odd for us to say it that way, that, uh, that he yearns for us. And if it's odd, especially to hear a male say this, that's probably our loss. These sorts of emotions on display are really good. They're from God. Paul talks about some of that emotion comes uh, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day, he says, until now. So we talked about the first day of the Philippian church, if you were here with us last week. That's uh, recorded in Acts chapter 16, where there was just a small little handful of worshipers there in the city of Philippi, one of whom was Lydia. And we talked about how the beginning of it was that the Lord opened her heart, Luke says in Acts 16. So that was the beginning of the church at Philippi. Now, here in this letter, about 10 years has passed, and the Philippian church has grown. We see he's addressing it to all the saints in Philippi, and uh, that's not, the saints, by the way, are not a special category of people, uh, you know, a sort of special believer. A saint is a reference to all believers in Jesus. And he references also the overseers, mine says, or elders and deacons. So they also have need now. The church is large enough that they need official leaders. So uh, these, this church has now grown in those 10 years. And Paul says whenever he prays for them, he prays with joy. Why? Why does he pray with joy? In verse 5, he answers that. He prays with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And that's what we'll focus on today. Next week, we'll look at some other parts of this opener. But uh, this morning, I want to focus our attention on what it means to, be, to have partnership in the gospel for them and then also for, for us. The Greek word, if we get nerd, a little nerdy here, pardon my Greek, um, but uh, the Greek word for the word translated partnership here is koinonia. The reason why I mention that is because it's kind of trendy now as, as we talk about church community to actually use that Greek word. You sometimes hear cultures talk about koinonia. And here it's translated partnership, but it can also be translated fellowship. And then later, there's a form of this word in verse uh, 7, toward the middle of it. He says, you all are partakers of the gospel. Uh, that could be translated by some translations. You're sharers, or you are partners. And you take all those words together, and you can kind of get the idea of what koinonia is. Partner, and partaker, and sharer. One's having fellowship. Now, some of those words can sound kind of, how do I say this, churchy to us. I mean, especially that word fellowship. You know, when Christians get together, we don't, we don't hang out or socialize, we fellowship. You know, I, and I've always, even as a little kid, I always wondered, like, what exactly do we mean by that? You know, usually when we say we're going to fellowship, it means we're going to, you know, talk and eat probably and maybe uh, show pictures of our kids and grandkids and loved ones on our phone. And, and koinonia absolutely includes that. 
But it is much more than that. You don't need to know the, the Greek to get at it. Just think about the English word partnership. Partnership is much more than contact. It's more, th- more than just interaction. It's investment. So if I'm a partner at a law firm, for example, um, I am part of that business. So if that business thrives, then I thrive. And if that business fails, then I fail. So koinonia then includes this sort of invested partnership. And a significant part of that partnership is financial. That's actually what happens here in the book of Philippians, at least in part at the end of the letter. I think he's talking about this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says this, It was kind of you to share or to partner or to koinonia in my trouble. And so what does it mean then that they're sharing in his trouble? How how does that look? As he continues, verse 15 of of chapter 4, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You can hear there, he's talking about the fact that the Philippian church had sent him in his travels some sort of financial gift to meet his needs, and, and they repeatedly do it. He says they once and again this happened, and that this partnership included giving and receiving, he says. Both of those things are important, the giving and receiving, because some of us may have more difficulty with giving because we're perhaps too stingy. Others of us might have more difficulty with receiving because we're perhaps too proud. In both of those, struggle with giving and receiving, the root is really selfishness. And this koinonia the partnership created by God works in the opposite direction of both of those. Paul even brags, if I could say it that way, on the way that this grace of God is expressed in Koinonia in the Philippian church as he talks about them as the church in Macedonia when he's writing to the Corinthian church. This is in 2 Corinthians. If I can find it here, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. So here he's talking about the Philippian church as he writes to another church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians, oh, in chapter, not 5, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. Paul says there that the Philippian church, out of their extreme poverty, but in an abundance of joy, they willingly overflowed in financial generosity. They gave first to the Lord, which then produced then to the apostles. It's interesting in the scriptures that when there is a real financial need in God's people, in his church, that God very rarely directly uh, rains down answer from heaven in financial sense. It's not often that we find a coin in a fish's mouth. Instead, God often meets those needs by moving in his people to meet those needs. And doing it this way, he strengthens the koinonia partnership amongst them. So part of this, then, is a financial piece, but at its root, you know, koinonia is much more than just an investment of finances. It's really an investment of the heart to go all in. Uh, You'll remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, um, some of you may even know where I'm going here with this already, Um, Naomi, who's a Jew, um, moves to the country of Moab. And when she gets there, uh, after some time, her husband dies, and then her two sons die. So she's left then with just two daughters-in-law. And so at that point, she decides to return home to Judah. And she says this then to one of her daughters-in-law, whose name is Ruth. Uh, This is Ruth, chapter 1, verse 15. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's a lovely expression of koinonia, real investment of the heart that what, what, what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. Now, to be clear, this is not communism or socialism. Those are, those are politically motivated. This is a willful giving motivated by love and care. And this sort of partnership that's happening between Ruth and Naomi is also true for Paul and the Philippians. And in a sense, it's really the call for all Christians. It doesn't mean that we're never apart from one another or that we never move or that things never change. 
Paul, for example, even though he'd been with the Philippians for a while, is now writing them to them from a distance. He's away from them physically, but even while he is away, his heart remains in koinonia, partnership with them. Because as we draw closer and closer to Jesus, we cannot help but draw closer and closer to one another. We're seeing that actually lived out right now as we as a church and even a denomination are praying for Andrew Brunson. None of us here knows this man personally. I've never met him. I've seen a picture of him and heard his story as he's in prison in Turkey. But even though we haven't met, we are still partnered with him in prayer and support. That's God's expression of, of koinonia. Now, when this is really lived out well, ah, it's lovely. It is lovely. But real koinonia, we know, is also difficult, even disruptive. And I think the Lord does it that way on purpose. He's intentional about this. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his famous, most famous works, Life Together, it's a small book. I love small books because I can actually get through them. Um, but he writes quite a bit about uh, Christian community or koinonia. And so he says this. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks, as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. But we do that, or when we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross, the cross raised athwart our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think that they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and balked, but it is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand when it can perform a service, and that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. What he says here is really that God disturbs us on purpose. God disturbs our plans, our work, our urgent things. And it's good for us, actually, here to be disturbed. It's a gift of God, a grace of God, uh, to be disrupted for the sake of one another. It's actually doing something in us. It's helping to develop love for one another. So that, like Paul says, that our love would abound more and more. That I grow in wanting your good 
even if it costs me. That's a reflection of the way that God relates to us. And Paul says uh, here in the opener of the letter, he says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, I feel for you the way that Jesus feels for you. The Jesus who emptied himself, who made himself nothing for our good, united us with him. That we now have fellowship him, that we now have partnership with him, that we now have koinonia with him. This Jesus who washed his disciples' feet said, this is how I love you. And as I, as I have loved, so you must now love each other. This is how people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other like this. That's what real koinonia is, to be a reflection of God. Don't you want that to be true of us? think I want that, we want that for each other, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, when people look at us as a church, they wouldn't see people uh, who just get annoyed by other people or or who uh, quibble over trivial things, but that they would see a church that really, really loves each other. They'd see a people who are true partners of koinonia with each other and partakers in in the grace of God. We see that in us to a degree, and we can, we can always grow. We want that to, to grow more and more in us until it's just overflowing. In fact, that's what's happening in the Philippian church, that this grace of koinonia that is happening within the church has grown so big that it's spilling outside of the church. You'll notice he talks about uh, having joy with them because of their partnership in the gospel, that in other words, that partnership goes somewhere, that it, that it does something, that God is using their koinonia to carry his truth, his grace, his goodness in Jesus to the world. Now, what might that look like? I don't know. Uh, we, can, we can wrestle with these things. There's plenty uh, to know. It's, it's very complex. It's tough to know all, of course, of what this might look like. But I will say that one expression has been placed on our doorstep in recent years when it comes to our interaction with, with refugees and immigrants. I know in talking about these things, there's, there's often some political charge in, in discussions of refugees and, and immigrants, and that's not my intent right now. Um, I don't profess to know all of what's right to do in these situations, and I, I want to oversimplify a very complex set of situations. But it's at least worth thinking about what this would look like in that area. Sadly, 
it seems that many who call themselves Christians are more concerned with their own preoccupation that these people, these refugees and immigrants, will take our jobs and take our money and take our sense of safety. Some are more concerned with those things than about living as real partners of the gospel of Jesus. It seems that that sort of attitude is just so contrary to the grace of God that Paul and the Philippians are experiencing. The sort of grace that that moves them to even give beyond their means, to give out of their even extreme poverty, but out of the abundance of joy with a wealth of generosity. It does make me wonder what it would look like for true Christians to express this koinonia and partnership with the gospel in our relationship to especially immigrants and refugees. At any rate, true koinonia, even though it's often challenging and asks of sacrifice from us, it is worth it. Paul here, as he's writing this, isn't going, man, I wish it were different than this. As we grow in our koinonia, you can, you can hear that it returns so much more than it actually gives. You can see it as Paul talks. He is not empty, but very full here. He is full of thanks. He is full of joy. And he is full of love. And that is worth so much more than anything else that he might cling to. Because in Koinonia, he is actively seeing and experiencing God at work in him and them. And God's work here is just the beginning. Verse 6, he says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and Savior, would you do this work in us now to produce in us this sort of koinonia partnership? We need your grace to make us true partners in the gospel, to love as you have loved, and to be partakers of your grace. Guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.